Welcome to The Word at First Pres. During Advent, we are doing a sermon series called The Road to Bethlehem. The goal of this series is to paint a total and complete picture of the world into which Jesus was born. I hope you enjoy. Let's continue this service with the reading of our first scripture, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 20. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 40. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this, the sixth month, for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you have been here the last couple weeks, then you know that we've been doing a sermon series called The Road to Bethlehem. Now, I thought very long and hard about coming up with a new graphic calling the detour to the road to Bethlehem and not doing Alex's sermon series, but then I was like, I gave him enough grief last time I preached. So the concept behind this series is that most of us know the story of Jesus' birth. 
But many of us don't really know the history surrounding the time when Jesus was born. So the purpose of the series is to really inform us about the events of the time, to give us a fuller picture of the world in which Jesus was born into, so that when we get to Christmas and we get to celebrating, celebrate the coming of our Lord, we have a greater understanding and appreciation of what that meant for his life and the lives of those around him. In this sermon series, we've been going from a wide shot of the world down to a more narrow one. And for this sermon, we're going to be focusing on the economics of Galilee, so we're zooming even more into the world in which Jesus was born and how that would have impacted the people's view of the Messiah around that time. But first, just a slight recap of the world for anyone who might have missed the last two weeks. In the first sermon, we talked about the founding of the Roman Empire in 26 BC. Emperor Augustus was declared the victor after a very bloody civil war, and he was in full control of the largest empire on earth. The size of the Roman Empire was both a blessing and a curse. It was a curse in the sense that it was hard to control such a vast territory. We've learned in the past couple of weeks how Rome's primary tactic for keeping the populace in line was to crush any resistance with brutal force. Due to the fact that any minor infraction of the law was met with violence, the subjects of the Roman Empire were often too scared to engage in uprisings and revolts. However, violence was not the only tactic of control. Augustus understood that if his subjects were financially prosperous, there would be less need for violence. Therefore, Augustus set out to stabilize Rome's economy with the release of standardized coinage throughout the empire. This coinage made it far easier for the nations to engage in commerce with one another. Thus, the blessing of such a large empire is that everyone was able to do business with everyone else, which created a booming economy in many places, and this included in the Holy Land. Wealthy Jews loved being able to do business under a new Roman regime, and for the first 40 years of the empire's existence, from 26 BCE through 14 CE, Rome helped to create an incredibly robust and diversified economy in the Holy Land. During this period, everyone from aristocrats to artisans to peasants enjoyed an improved standard of living. Jesus himself would have benefited from this prosperity. Now, Jesus is described in the Gospels as a tecton in Greek, which is also translated as a carpenter into English. But a better translation would be a handyman. Jesus was the guy you would call when you needed an odd job done. However, since Nazareth was such a small village, Jesus would not have been able to find enough work as a handyman to support himself. Interestingly enough, 
about five miles away from the village, was a city that was being constructed for the wealthiest citizens of Galilee. This city was called Sephorus. Now last week, Alex told you about a man named Judas the Galilean, how he, along with 2,000 of his followers, stormed Sephorus after Herod died and raided Herod's royal armory and took the city hostage. The Roman army came in and easily defeated Judas, and they not only crucified all of his followers, but they also killed all of the men of the city and sold the women and children into slavery for not better guarding their arsenal. And then finally, the Roman army burned the city to the ground. Now, about 10 years after this, Herod's son decided that he wanted to rebuild Sephorus. So what you're seeing on the screens is a floor mosaic in Sephorus. That's on the floor. They just walked on that. This gives you a sense of the opulence that this city had at one time. More than likely, Jesus would have been part of the building efforts in Sephorus during his teenage years. And he wouldn't have been the only one. It is more than likely that most of the men in Nazareth would have traveled the five-mile walk every day to Sephorus to participate in the building project there. And these kinds of building projects were happening all over the Holy Land. And that meant that the peasant population could easily earn extra money. Therefore, even if their own personal crops didn't perform well, the peasants who worked on these building projects could afford to buy extra food at the market. For a group of people who are often malnourished, such economic benefit brought real stability to their lives. Another aspect of the economics of Galilee is to look at the fishing industry around the lake or sea of Galilee. If you do a little research, what you discover is that the lake is owned by the Herod family. You couldn't just go out onto the lake and fish whenever you wanted. You had to sign a leasing agreement that specified how many fish you were allowed to bring to market and then how many you had to give to Herod. Usually these leases were about 50-50. So half of the fish you caught would go to Herod and then half of them you would be able to keep. But when the economy started to struggle, Herod tightened his control over the Lake of Galilee, forcing the smaller fishing enterprises to hand over more and more of their daily catch to tax collectors. By the time that we get to the scenes in the gospel where Peter and James and John leave all of their fish and follow Jesus, the leases could be as high as 90 to 10. So for every 10 fish you caught, nine of them went to Herod, and you only got to keep one. All of a sudden, these fishing businesses that had been around for centuries were struggling to stay afloat. Pun not intended, but I did hear it just now. <laughs> because they were bringing so few fish to market. However, around the time that Jesus was born, so 30 years before that, businesses were booming. 
So much so that archaeologists who, is, who have excavated homes in Capernaum, where Peter's home was located, from the first century, they found a lot of glassware. Now, Alex assures me that glassware was very expensive, and one of the most decadent homes could afford it. Now, clearly, people in Capernaum, which was a fishing town, were doing well enough in the first part of the first century to be able to afford luxuries like glass. And these were also, these were usually only accessible to the wealthiest people. I don't know about you, but I have like a whole cupboard full of glass. It's hard to imagine that that was expensive. But all this to say that around the time that Jesus was born, the economics of the area were such that people were pretty much happy. However, for many Jews living in Galilee, this happiness felt bought at a high price. Sure, they were prosperous, but they were living under the rule of the Roman Empire. This meant that they did not have the autonomy to act in their own self-interests. In a sense, the Roman Empire had clouded people's judgment and through wealth had made the people somewhat desensitized to the reality that they were being ruled by foreigners. Still, there was a significant group of Jews hoping for the Messiah to come and free them from Roman rule. Most people assumed that the Messiah would come from the wealthy class because the Messiah had to raise and lead an army and you need money to pay for an army and you need education to lead them. However, the amazing thing about the climate of the day is that the people of Galilee put a lot of emphasis on the fact that the Messiah would be countercultural. This idea has always struck me as odd because people always say they want a leader who is countercultural, but then inevitably, when they get such a leader, they, they no longer want them. Countercultural is great until you realize how much of the culture you're actually benefiting from. And suddenly, you don't want countercultural for yourself, just for those other people who are abusing the system. Jesus is a great example of this. Those in Galilee wanted a Messiah to come and shake up the status quo. And so Jesus came and told them to love their enemies, pray for those who persecute them, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the prisoner, be like the Good Samaritan, which I want to remind you would be akin to Jesus telling us to be like the good Taliban member. He told them to sell all they had and follow him, to pick up their oppressor's instrument of death, the cross, and follow him. I mean, it doesn't get much more countercultural than that. And there was a belief that the Messiah was going to shake people out of their stupor. And it would seem that Jesus did this, just not in that certain way that certain people were hoping for. The Messiah would be pure and holy, focused on God and impervious to the lure of money. 
And this is why in the stories of Matthew and Luke, they highlight the ways in which Jesus was born in the image of God's spirit. The Messiah would be a champion for those who needed one. This is a big reason why Jesus' messiahship resonated with so many people on the outskirts, so many people who are marginalized. He came from poverty, and therefore he had the people's best interest at heart. He could not be bought. He would not sell out. In many ways, Jesus was an outcast messiah, a messiah for the people not for the power. This definitely shook some stupors. And Jesus continues to try and shake us out of our stupors. The stupors that convenience and comfortability can create. The stupors of being surrounded by those like us, with problems like us, or more accurately, with a lack of problems like us. We can find ourselves in a comfortable spot where our needs are met, a lot of our wants are met, where we don't worry about how we're going to pay for rent or heat or put food on the table, where we're surrounded by people who live similarly or even more extravagantly, making us feel like, sure, I have money, but it, I'm not rich like the Joneses. It is in these stupors that Jesus calls to wake us up, to shake us up, to show us how the world outside of our bubbles is, to call us out of the culture that we have become cozy with and say, should the world really be this way? Should we be so comfy with how the world is when it's not like that for everyone? We in Arlington Heights and the surrounding areas, have found ourselves in a similar situation as those in Galilee found themselves 2,000 years ago. Generally, we are living well. We have enough money for food and other needs. Heck, we have glassware in our houses. What ways will you allow Jesus to shake up your world? What parts of the culture of your life would Jesus be counter to? Have we even mastered the lessons that were taught 2,000 years ago? To love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, care for the prisoner, be like the good Taliban member, sell all we have and follow Jesus. As Christmas comes hurtling closer and closer to us, I hope that we can truly look deep into our lives, see where we have become comfortable to the point of complacency, see where we need a shakeup, where we need countercultural, and allow Jesus to come bursting into our lives with trumpets and shepherds and angels and truly wake us up from our stupors, so that we can live lives worthy of his calling. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.
www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.